Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer? A beach bum summer? Or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door. In as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, folks, before we talk to Freak Base, let's talk about the after party on our Patreon page. Every Friday, Kimberly Johnson and I record a fourth podcast for the week, but this one is totally different from the usual Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday shows. The Friday After Party podcast is loaded with all the politics you want, while also including uncensored, completely obscene conversations about sex, drugs, movies, television, our personal lives, all the crap we can't get away with on the free show. And it's generating all kinds of comments and conversation on our Patreon page at bobseskashow.com. Don't miss out. Please help support this show by subscribing to our Friday After Party podcast for just $10 per month. That's bobseskashow.com or just click the all-caps Patreon link beneath the logo at bobseska.com. And now, let the cartoons begin. Recorded live in the USA, covering the whole wide world. Right on! This is the Bob Seska Show, presented by BubbleGenius.com. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, February 3, 2021, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. My guest today is one of the great funk bass players of our time, the great Freak Bass is here today. Those of you who follow the indie music I play on the show will recognize Freak as one of my all-time favorites. Well, today we're going to talk about the funk scene, his collaborations with other music legends, and everything there is to know about Freak and his music. Plus, I believe he's going to perform his new single called Brainwave for us live right here on the show. I can't wait for that. Freakbase.com, links in the description to support his work. Meanwhile, if you like what you hear today, don't forget to subscribe to our bonus content at patreon.com slash show. Okay, let's get to know my friend, Freakbase. Or, or wait, here we go, Bob, here for you. There you go. <laughs> That's fucking great. Holy shit. Vital signs. I picked that yeah. out right away. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a good one. So, you know, I'm so glad we finally have a chance to talk here on the show. And I don't think I've mentioned this to you before, but I find you to be absolutely fascinating. And I mean, both as a musician and as a guy. I mean, when you first reach out to me to play uh, some of your work on my show, I was, of course, completely blown away by your music, but I wrongfully assumed, and I don't know what this says about me, I wrongfully assumed your personality was kind of like Gary Oldman in True Romance. I don't know why I would say, <laughs> this guy That's looks like he's going to be like a nuclear explosion contained within an amazing costume, <laughs> but, but, you're, oh. but you're not. In fact, you're one of the nicest guys I've met in like the 25 years I've been working online. So it, it makes sense that you're into comic book movies because you have two distinct personas. I mean, on stage where you're freak base and right. off stage where you're kind of just a dad from Ohio. Do you feel like a different person when you're the freak base than as opposed to when you're just at home doing stuff with your kids? 100% sure. The only, you know, obviously the only, the, the rub is I'm never quite sure who the real person is, you know, uh, <laughs> For for better or worse, yeah. you know, um, um, 
that person on stage is definitely feels like a big part of me, but the person off stage obviously does too. So mm. it's definitely, there's a little bit of a split personality kind of thing probably going on too as well, for sure. Yeah. Is that influenced by, you know, as I said, uh, sort of comic book movies and, you know, our mutual love of Batman and things like that, where it's all about the dual personality, right? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the big reasons I think, you know, even at a young age, I think that's what got me kind of attracted to that, you know, the the the, the outcast from society aspect to, of it and um, yeah. and the dual personality thing. I mean, that that's why I think that's why I connected so hard with that. And, you know, even like especially like the X-Men, too, who I'm really into that. Mm -hmm. That's that side of, um, you know, just being the outcast because I never felt, you know, and again, no, not looking for any violins or anything like that at all. But but. You know, even in music, the music world, it's like, you know, I've always, I'm always like on this, this bubble of like, okay, well, like you're kind of a little too weird for R&B, but you're also a little too R&B for alternative music. You know, it's like, I've never quite could figure out, you know, where I kind of fit in. So I just kind of like, well, if I can't really figure out what I'm going to fit in. I'm just going to kind of make my own thing and be me is, you know, to the 10th degree, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a big part of who you are, which is very literally who you are. It's, it's like your inner self is allowed to kind of just flourish. And that's been sort of your motivating and, uh, animating, uh, philosophy, right? For sure. Yeah. 100% sure. Yeah. And again, it, it all goes from, you know, my mom grew up, she was, uh, and it wasn't even my mom's, you know, she's more from like the Beatles, Jimi Hendrix generation, but she was, uh, for some reason she was like on to Elvis and, mm -hmm. and, uh, she would make me little Elvis costumes when I was like five, six, seven years old. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so, you know, I was always, it was always about, and then when I got, got a little older, of course, getting, getting into people like Bowie and, and, uh, and the talking heads. And so it's always been like a combination of both the musical and the visual they kind of happen at the same time with mm -hmm. me yeah and did that kind of trigger your love of music as well you're saying your mom is into uh, elvis presley and the beatles uh, when you were younger is that sort of your first exposure to a variety of music i mean beyond just the things that you hear in kindergarten she was and then my my father was the one that actually got my my dad who's he's not around anymore but he's the one that um he played a little bit of guitar he would you know he would listen to everything from you know i remember listening to you know Rolling Stones, get your yaya out forever, hmm. and the Joe Cocker Mad Dogs and Englishmen record with him, and then and then he was rolling to Willie Nelson too, and then the you know the Jesus Christ Superstar album, which I still have nightmares about that album. And um, <laughs> what, wait, wait, why do you have nightmares about Jesus Christ Superstar? That, what was that one lick? The I think it was uh, what the yeah. forty lashes or whatever that lick. I remember, you know, it was my parents' parting day, so it was like they were like cranking that up, you know. And I remember hearing da na na da ka da 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 So I always have, uh, you know, that that uh, you know, it's the smell of alcohol and cigarettes <laughs> and forty lashes from yeah. uh, you know uh, from Jesus Christ Superstar. So that album is, is 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 ingrained in me. Yeah, and I assume you had to have been into stuff like Bowie and Kiss and so on. I mean, apart from some of these other things like uh, obviously you've evolved into one of the quintessential funk musicians but early on the, as far as the costumes as far as the stage presentations on were those influences of yours uh, for sure yeah. yeah Bowie especially I mean I remember being like you know barely you know you know when you're when you stay up too late and and there was a video on really late I remember the ashes to ashes video being on TV and I was kind of like squinting at it like half awake <laughs> half of asleep and I'm like what is this this and what the hell is going on here, mm -hmm. you know? And then, and then, you know, when I got to be, you know, a kid where I was actually starting to play and stuff, that that kind of bridged me into so much British music. You know, I was a, you know, it, it, it used to be not cool to say, but I'll say it now. I was like a huge Duran Duran fan when I was a little kid, you know. And incredible, of, incredible bass licks on and Duran that's Duran why, music. Yeah, yeah, bass and song. I mean, I like songwriting too. You know, I'm. I mean, I know some people, you know, have a problem with Simon Le Bon's vocals sometimes being a little too whiny and teeny boppy but for me it was like the just the the songs were just, and you know now whatever 20 30 40 years later those songs obviously are still you know whether it be you know uh hungry like the wolf or rio or whatever those songs mm -hmm. still hold up you know many many years later oh yeah and rio has one of the great bass lines of any oh, duran dude. duran song it yeah. is yeah yeah and i'm so glad you have your bass plugged in 
Yeah, yeah, there it is. And, uh, you yeah. know, I was just saying, I, I'm so glad you have your bass plugged in because I spent a lot of time playing bass. I was trying all kinds of different things, and I discovered that I really didn't have the finesse for six-string guitar or viola or cello or anything like that. And sure. then, I, then I picked up a bass kind of later than you would expect. I, like, I was 20, and I, oh, wow. I yeah. picked it up, and I'm like, oh my God, this makes so much sense. I feel like it's completely comfortable. And you kind of had that same revelation, didn't you? Totally, totally. Yeah. I mean, you know, I started off as a drummer initially. And um, and so like even now, like a lot of times people ask me about my bass playing and I say, you know, I feel like I'm a drummer that plays notes. That's kind of <laughs> the approach I take to writing bass lines. It's almost yeah. like I think of the beat first and then add the, and the melody second. But um, same thing, you know, a lot of times, you know, you hear the, so many of those stories like, well, I ended up being a bass player because the guitar, you know, everybody was already playing guitar and they needed a bass player. So I just did it and almost out of like second choice. And for me, it was always first choice. I remember mm -hmm. uh, when I was a kid, there was a, in Ohio, there's a music college called Oberlin Music College and they, their jazz band will kind of tour around the state. And I was probably fifth or sixth grade and they uh, just coincidentally set me right in front of the bass player. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it was like almost, well, it was a religious experience for me. I mean, when I heard the tones come, I mean, I'd already heard, always heard bass on recordings and, and was always kind of drawn to it. But when I actually saw how it was done mm -hmm. and seeing that instrument in front of me, I remember like it was yesterday at an SG, you know, like Jack Bruce shaped bass sitting in front of me and um and it just i was like i have to the thickness you know i play a lot of guitar now too as well but even guitar for me always felt even now it's like i feel like if i'm not careful enough with it i'll break it i'm a pretty heavy-handed guy you <laughs> I know? know what you mean yeah yeah and for bass like the, the chunkiness of it the thickness and obviously the sounds coming out of it um mm -hmm. You know, growing up in Cincinnati with the funk thing being so huge here, you know, when I heard like more bounce to the ounce by Zap and, you know, the bass was so up in front, I was like, you know, that's, you know, what drew me into that style of music too. Yeah. Yeah. And what's fascinating about uh, your performances is the fact that, you know, I know a lot of guys who went into playing bass thinking, okay, well, this will be great. I can be in a band. I can fuck around. I can do whatever I want, but I can hang back on stage. I don't have to be up front. I don't have to be the main guy, but you're taking the bass to the point of being the main guy. I mean, you're up front, not only visually in your live performances, but you're up front in terms of the mix of the bass. So the bass drives everything. And for me, that is just what music is all about. I mean, obviously, I love Chris Squire and, and Getty Lee and all right, these of uh, progressive uh, uh, bass players and so on who kind of did that in a way that uh, was maybe inspired by things like funk musicians, jazz musicians. And so there is kind of some connective tissue there, but the commonality is you taking the bass as an upfront instrument. And I wonder if people are doing the same thing where they're seeing you play and going, Man, I want to get in on that. I want to play a bass like that. I had no idea that could be done. Do you ever hear from uh, you know fans who are like, "Holy shit, you just, your playing has been a revelation to me. I got to buy a bass now." Yeah, I do, and I actually have had actually they, a lot of them end up you know I teach too, and some of them have become my students and kind of told me similar stories, which is super obviously yeah. humbling and and an honor to hear. And, um, yeah, I mean, I went through the, a lot of the same, you know, the Chris Squires and the Getty Lees. And of course, you know, every bass player goes through a Jocko Pastorius phase, which I was like, <laughs> you know, I'm, yeah. you know, I went through that year where I'm like, I'm going to be Jocko. That's how I'm going to, mm -hmm. I'm going to be Jocko. It's like, you know, the Michael Jordan thing with bass players. And, yeah. um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's funny because being like out in front, it wasn't really so much a total conscious i was in a group a funk group not long out of high school called shag and it was the first time i really started touring and mm -hmm. stuff and it was a big 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 funk band and uh you know horns the whole nine yards we were like we were like 10 12 people on the road when we toured and um and you know i was just you know living it to the fullest being this crazy guy dressing like i as crazy as i do <laughs> so when i ended up doing you know originally when i did the freak bass thing it was originally going to be kind of more of a kind of a just a side project thing that we could sell at the merch booth and all that kind of stuff as a little extra then uh the band you know for a myriad of reasons you know just based long story short just the, the road taking the toll on some people mm -hmm. um uh, we took a break and I was like, well, maybe I'll go out and do some shows now from, in my mind, I was thinking, well, I'm already jumping around like a crazy man over here on the side of the stage. I'll just move a couple feet over into the center and it'll be the same thing. It'll be easier. Yeah. Do you not? I mean, that first probably six months to a year, I was like scared, you know, when, 
it's one thing if people are con or you making a choice to look at you at the side of the stage for being crazy, but when everybody, most of the people are looking at you, it's a weird, you know, I mean, I understand why front guys like kind of go through like mental issues. Cause yeah. I mean, not that luckily that hasn't happened to me, but the, um, there's just that thing where it's like what everybody's staring at you. It's a, such a weird, it's a, it's a different, it's not just a matter of moving a couple feet over on the stage. And so that was a real big adjustment period for me. And again, it was more like, it wasn't so much, you know, it wasn't like, Hey, I want to be the next prince or an ego thing or anything it was just kind of like i want to keep touring how can i keep touring and make sure that it's always you know no matter who is with me on the road i can still be touring no matter what no matter what the lineup is no matter what it is so it was that was it was more out of just being being practical and out of necessity is why i kind of took the reins of the, being the front guy in the whole thing did you ever run into other musicians who are on stage where they're going okay now what the hell is this guy doing get back to where you belong over on the side don't encroach on my lead performance territory here was there ever resistance from people you've played with along those lines yeah i mean i think so and i think even so even now, you know even in the tour scene i tour in now mm-hmm. um you know it's not vindictive or anything necessarily but you know a lot of times people just you know just like when you started talking at the beginning of the interview they just don't know what to think of. you know if you just <laughs> if you've never talked to me or know my personality or anything you're like whoa what is it you know if i saw yeah. me i'd be like what's the deal with this dude you know <laughs> and um so there's always a little, and then, you know, a lot of times, you know, it's like almost like I'm like the magic trick they can bring out and, you know, mm-hmm. and like, you know, pull the cat, the, the, the rabbit out of the hat and then kind of put back when they want to. So there's still, it's always, even now you would think with, you know, there's so many frontman bass players, whether it be Les Claypool or of course, Victor Wooten, Marcus oh, yeah. Miller, um, Sting, you know, Paul, well, of course, Paul McCartney from the Beatles and, um, or Wings. And so it's not so much the, um, as, strange as it is but there's still even now people still you know it's just naturally the guitar player and or just a front guy is the more normal thing for a bass player to front a band is still out of the norm and i think a lot of it is because you know we always have to remember the electric bass and the whole you know think of the whole history of music it's really not that what 1951 52 something like that when the Mm -hmm. first you know electric bass came out the fender precision so You know, if you put that up against, you know, violins and cellos and even the electric guitar, for that matter, it's, um, you know, we're, we're kind of like the babies, you know? Yeah. But I wanted to circle back. You mentioned about pulling a rabbit out of a hat. Is it true that um, one of your first aspirations was to be a magician? Is that something you wanted to do? That is true. And it's funny you bring that up because I had someone recently and, and I and they and a fan that comes and sees us play in, uh, I think in West Virginia, they're like, dude, you know, they, they, <laughs> they, 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 they done that part of the history. I mean, they're like, you should actually make that part of the act, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, holy um, shit. You know? And I was like, I was like mm-hmm. that's a pretty good idea, you know? <laughs> but yeah, it was the same thing. I was always, I'm an only child. So, you know, God bless my parents. They would sit there for when I'm like five, four or five, six years old. And I would create these, this whole little magic show with them, which is probably so boring, but they would like appease me on it. And I would put on these little magic shows for, for my parents. You know, I'd like, yeah. I'd take all the yolk out of an egg and then like put paper inside of it so I could bust open the egg. And just, I had all kinds of little, awesome. little, 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 tre- yeah. So it was, it was kind of crazy. But, um, so yeah, that was my thing. You know, I think it was a combination of just the magic itself and their whole style. And like, you know, even then I didn't think of like, you know, I probably wasn't thinking about being on the road, but like, you know, you, you were starting to see, you'd see them, you know, I remember seeing like an old Harry Houdini movie and it seemed like he was playing in different clubs, you know, it was more like clubs mm-hmm. almost more. And it was like that lifestyle. I was like, that's kind of cool going to a different city all the time and doing the same show. I like, even at a very young age, I kind of dug that part of it, you know, yeah. so it just led into the musician thing, obviously. I imagine you are uh, so much fun as a dad. I mean, do you spend hours just entertaining your kids with magic tricks or do you, are they, do you still do any of that stuff? Well, you know, my magic trick obviously now is, is music. So like uh, both my daughter, you know, last year we play a big, um, I don't play Cincinnati a whole lot anymore, but we do once a year, we do a big in town show. Mm-hmm. Um, of course this is pre COVID, but, um, we would do, we would call it Funksgiving and it was, it's always the Friday after Thanksgiving at a really cool venue called the Southgate house, which is this big hundred year old church. They turn into a big venue. And, um, the, um, so last year I actually had my daughter who was, is 14, she's 15 now, but she's 14 at the time mm-hmm. came out we did uh we mentioned bowie earlier we do a cover of uh our own version of fame and she came up and played the guitar part on fame on stage with me and uh 
you know, so that was mind blowing. And then my younger daughter, who's eight, she um, she's starting to she's got an incredible voice. And so we're starting to record her now, too. So so my magic for them is, is getting them down in the recording studio. And there's understanding, you know, they understand starting to understand Tay, even my eight year old. She's like, OK, let's do another t- take. And, you know, they're starting to understand the whole way the thing works. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So that's kind of how I'm kind of spreading spreading my my uh, my knowledge to them. Yeah. And in fact, uh, last year you recorded a video about the pandemic called stay home featuring right. your girls i mean are, are yeah. you en- are you enjoying being off the road for a while and spending time with them uh, or are you just dying to start touring again well of course i miss the road and i miss you know the the fans and and you know see the, i mean there's people that you go to each city and you you know you see them there each you know every time we play dc i see the same group of people or we play in huntington west virginia you see the same group of people come out so i miss because they become like family um but um of course, being being home, and I'm sure every musician will tell you this. You know, connecting with with your, your own personal family more is is definitely a blessing. And and I've actually enjoyed. You know, I miss the road so much, but I also, you know, even doing stuff like your show and and doing podcasts more, and you know, doing so much of the streaming stuff we're doing now. And then and then you know, I've been releasing a which we'll probably, I'm sure we'll talk about later in the show. But the uh, I've been releasing a single literally every month, single and accompanying video every single month since the mm-hmm. pandemic started once a month. And, you know, I don't know if I'd be able to do that if I was on the road full time. And um, and that's been, you know, that's part of the performance that I enjoy, too. So there's, you know, I've us musicians have to learn to adapt. And we've been doing that. You know, that's the whole way we are our existence. So, mm-hmm. you know, every musician I know, you know, that that's been living through this we've been all kind of adapting in our own kind of way and um and this is the way so there's a lot of you know there's a lot of silver you know believe me the pandemic sucks and it's awful and there's we could go on a whole another two-hour show about that but the um but this uh the silver linings are some things that have come out and you know i think a lot of this stuff you know not to go down a separate rabbit hole but i think a lot of this stuff like all the streaming stuff that's happening with hbo moving you know Mm -hmm. from theater i think that was going to happen anyway it's just a matter of just this all sped it up a little bit that's Mm -hmm. it you know it's uh fascinating going through this experience of the pandemic and being isolated and it's also fascinating not only experiencing it myself but observing indie musicians and wondering what the next evolutionary stage is going to be in the process of exposing your work to new audiences, which is traditionally done through touring. And I'm wondering what you're talking about uh, adaptation. And I'm wondering if you and other musicians you talk to uh, have kind of recalibrated how you look at what life is going to be like in music after this is over like are you going to do things a little bit differently incorporating in some of these things like uh, streaming and doing a lot of uh, performances online that you may not have done before the pandemic is that kind of becoming a new scene or is that just an old scene that's getting more visibility now uh, well, I think it's definitely, you know, it's obviously a new normal for sure. I think, yeah. I don't think like even when, if everything was a hundred percent okay and you could go out and just be crazy party person, I think this is here to stay in terms of this, this way. I mean, I know f- personally, we, you know, we get all our numbers like you do, I'm sure on all your socials and, and all that kind of stuff. And during this, because of being so directly related to people, our numbers have both, you know, on Spotify and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. have definitely progressively been creeping up through this. Um, because of people being engaged more. I don't know if it's because they're at home more or whatever the case may be. Um, So I think, you know, it's a combination of, I think with touring, especially for independent musicians, um, you know, the big, big question mark is the club thing. It's not, you know, the festivals are going to happen, you know, especially the outside ones. Those are going to happen. Those, you know, they'll probably be semi-normal, I'd say, by fall-ish, you know, Mm -hmm. of next year, unless something crazy happens again, which, of course, is always a possibility. But um, but the the 300 to 800 seat club gigs, which are the gigs that you play, you know, on, on, you know, whatever level you're on, on, you know, on a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday night, you know, that bridge. So you can tour throughout the country, you know, for, you know, playing, you know, if we have an off night on Tuesday and we're stuck in Idaho, we're going to go play the whatever the club there is in Idaho or mm-hmm. whatever. So those I that's where the big question mark comes in because you know I think a lot of club owners too are super super gun shy will be for a long time gun shy with guarantees and and um 
you know, that kind of thing too. And then people coming in, just like how movie theaters are open now, I think even after everybody's vaccinated, there's going to be that hesitancy to be all jammed up in a club, sweating all over each other, you know, <laughs> together, you know, no matter, right. you know, what the situation is, even if we are supposedly A-OK, you know? Speaking of your live performance, I want to get into uh, your costumes and your wardrobe for your shows because it's just fascinating to look at. First of all, I got to ask you, how the hell do you play while wearing the panda head? That's, <laughs> I wanted to know that ever since I first saw a video of you performing. And you were doing, I think in one video I saw on YouTube, you were doing a solo in that panda head, which right. either means that you can somehow see your bass through it or you've gotten so goddamn good that you don't need to look at your bass to play anymore. So how do you end up sort of mixing performance with very elaborate costumes? Well, in terms of the panda head, that's funny you bring that up. The um, the uh, I'm blind most of the time I'm on stage anyway because I don't I wear glasses and I don't wear them on stage. I wear sunglasses, but I don't wear like you know uh, prescription glasses. Right. And um, so you know, putting the panda, giving myself a little bit you know extra level of blindness wasn't as 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 uh, cumbersome as you might think. So it wasn't as weird that um, so. Um, uh, but in terms of like this, the, the stage stuff, I mean, to me that again, if you going back to almost the beginning of our conversation, if I went on stage and was wearing t-shirt and jeans, I would feel like I was playing dress up, yeah. you know? Hmm. Um, and I, there's even been a couple shows where we've been like really like, you know, like the van broke down or something like that. And we, and you know, we had like 10 minutes to get on stage and it was like a multi-band bill. And so we just had to run on stage and I was like, okay, I'll just, you know, wear what I was wearing when I was in the van and maybe throw a little, <laughs> you know, a scarf on or something like that. Yeah. And I felt just didn't feel, I felt weird the whole show. I felt like, I was, again, I felt like I was playing dress up. And yeah. um, so all the, you know, as I was learning to play bass and learning to record and, and, and everything, I was also learning to how to tie a tie and, and, and cross colors and stuff. I always say, uh, um, and I don't mean that, you know, I always say that, uh, that, uh, uh, God left the, uh, I should have been a gay man and, um, I've got all, every, all, all the qualities of it. He must've forgot that one, uh, that one gene for me. And <laughs> that, that one at, thing. At yeah. Yeah. That one thing. Yeah. So, um, and, uh, so yeah, it just, it just kind of happened all together. I've always kind of been doing, even when I, I mean, I remember being, 14 years old and there's a big club in Cincinnati called Bogarts and it was like my mm -hmm. first time playing but I was like so like geeked out and it was a band and here you'll, you'll dig this we were like a rush we did all rush we did La Vila Strong Guiato oh my god wow yeah I know that was my first I like sweating bullets learning a bass part <laughs> and um uh, especially that bass solo which is ridiculous mm -hmm. and um the um and I remember even for that show, even like, you know, okay, okay, I got my gear together, know what I'm doing with the rig. Okay, now what am I going to wear? You know, that was a big, and you know, I acted down, when I, from the time I was 14 till I was probably 16 or 17, I was one of those people that went to the Rocky Horror Picture Show every weekend, and I was Dr. Frankenfurter in the cast. So, oh, wow. Okay, that makes yeah. total sense. So there you go. So, you know, <laughs> totally I, was, I was wearing garter belts and uh, and makeup at 14 years, so it all, it all kind of, uh, you know, all kind of worked together. I was As I was growing musically, I was also growing on that side of stuff, too. Oh, yeah. I can't even imagine uh, what your parents might have thought, because I, I when I was around that age, I was really into metal, like the 80s metal, Iron Man. Maiden and Judas Priest and all of those things. So I was really into that. And I was wearing the black t-shirts, the concert shirts, and I had the posters oh, yeah, yeah. and everything. The Eddie from Iron Maiden posters on my walls. And I had the long hair and all of it. And my parents were just like doing that Napoleon Dynamite side, just, oh, right, right. When are you going to cut your hair, Bobby? I mean, it's about time to cut your hair. And so, uh, you know, I faced all kinds of resistance as, as we all do when we're teenagers at some point, sure. we rebel against our parents and we do our own thing. Did you face that? Were your parents supportive of you going to Rocky Horror Picture Show's performances and so on? And they were, they, uh, you know, the big thing, I think, you know, one of the big things is that they knew where I was every weekend. I mean, mm -hmm. I was down there every Friday and Saturday night in Cincinnati, you know, it was the midnight movie. Even if I wasn't performing, like the way we did, they actually had like a cast that they had and, you know, one, one would do Friday, one would do Saturday. And uh, so even the nights I wasn't performing, I was down there because all my friends were down there too. Mm -hmm. So they at least knew I was kind of in that space. Now, the funny thing was we went to Florida. I remember for vacation one year, I think my mom might've seen the movie already, but my dad had never seen the movie. He, you know, he knew the gist of it kind of, but we went, I'm like, we went to, they went 
we went all to see it for the first time. And then he figured out who the guy was that I was playing. And he was like, <laughs> oh, you know, so he, uh, yeah, he didn't know what to think. Of, you know, my, my dad was supportive, but he didn't he still didn't know what to think of me, you know, yeah. uh, uh, much. But um, but they were, you know, I, I went to school for performing arts in Cincinnati and they, and they were very supportive of me going there. They've always been very, they were always especially my mom and my mom raised me on old Judy Garland movies and, mm-hmm. you know, and Mickey Rooney. And like I told you, Elvis. So the showbiz side of stuff was like, she was, and it was definitely showbiz. I mean, she was into that side, you know, the, the, the fantasy side of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's one of my mom's eyes, big bonding points now is like, you know, we'll, you know, talk about what we saw in Turner classic movies, you know, the night before or whatever. Yeah. And, um, and it's, um, so she's definitely probably the one that kind of, even though my dad was a musician and I kind of watched him, he played a little guitar and I kind of, mimic the way he played uh when i first picked up a guitar but it was um my mom was probably definitely the one that really pushed me uh to go in that direction yeah and when you went to school for music was that um an enriching experience or did they try to sort of shave the rough edges off of who you were as a musician because sometimes with uh, you know college or any sort of schooling environment uh some of the professors try to whip that enthusiasm out of you and try to get you to conform to a certain kind of thing was that your experience or were you allowed to kind of flourish while you were in school well scpa which is school for creative performing arts cincinnati it definitely pushes the majority of it pushes the creative side of it now with Mm -hmm. that said i did have a uh there was a uh one about the music directors at the school there was you know there was already when i got there i went there my junior and senior year though so and you know it started in fourth grade so there was a lot of kids that had been there the whole time oh wow and um so like there was already a bass player there so i was kind of like the new kid on the block coming there so (laughs) there was definitely a little bit of um you know just like there's peer you know uh pressure stuff and and like you know more athletic oriented type schools there was definitely a little bit of that clickiness there for sure um but um overall uh the uh i mean just the experience the main thing i got from going to that school when i went to uh, the school i went to which was just like you know kind of your standard college prep school Mm -hmm. um with a lot of athletics and stuff um uh, you know, on bass, I thought I was God's gift to bass. I mean, I thought I was like, you know, okay, watch out. You know, I'm the new Jimmy Hendrix of bass. Well, then I went to performing arts and I was like, first day, uh-oh. You know, there's, so that, which was good for me because it like really opened my eyes up. I mean, there's two kind of people I always say that go to performing arts. There's the ones that think they're going to graduate and be like on fame and walk out the door and Broadway is going to open their doors and let them in. Or there's, there's me who went there and I was like, oh my goodness, there's, there's a ton of talented people in the world and I'm going to have to work my ass off to get to the, you know, to stay at that level or try to get above it in any kind of way I can. So mm-hmm. it was a big eye opener for me, let alone the education I had there too, which was, you know, especially in the arts, it was just, you know, really unmatched. Really feel lucky to have, we have a school like that in Cincinnati. Cause Cincinnati was actually the second, the first one of course was the New York one that you see in the movie fame and stuff. But Cincinnati was actually the second hmm. performing arts school in the country. Oh, incredible. Yeah. And you never really think it. I mean, obviously, recently, over the past couple of decades, Ohio has become kind of a center, a hub for music. But for the longest time, it must have felt like... And politics, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No doubt about that. I don't know what the hell is going on in your state these days. Yeah, I don't freak. either. <laughs> but uh, in terms of bass playing, uh, you kind of pursued one of the more difficult styles of bass playing to pursue, which is which is funk. And funk is something that has always eluded me as a player when I was playing actively because it is so much about feel. It is so much about groove. Did that come naturally for you or did you start out with kind of the standard thing, either using your fingers or a pick and then kind of oh my God, this other thing sounds great. I got to try playing like that. What was the evolution into funk playing for you? Well, a big part of it is growing up in Cincinnati. Cincinnati, yeah. the funk, you know, and Ohio specifically, you know, obviously Bootsy's from here, all the James Brown, the hit songs were recorded here in Cincinnati, King mm-hmm. Records, um, Zap, and Ohio Players are right at the road in Dayton, which is like 45 minutes north of here. Mm-hmm. So there's, it's all, it doesn't matter what part of town you're in, you're, it's always kind of, it's in the, the DNA and the water here. So uh. that was part of it. You'd always hear it. But, um, um, you know, for me, like literally what it was is I, between my eighth grade year and my ninth grade year, I worked at a music store for the summer summer to, mm-hmm. to save up to buy a bass. And, um, so, uh, 
this guy would come in. He came in and he played like in a, like a local funk band, you know. He was, um, and he would come in and, and he sat down one day and he started, you know, thumping and plucking on the bass. And I was like, at that time, I was like into Rush and Yes and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. And um, and I heard him do that and I was like, whoa! Like I didn't even know you could do that on bass. Like what's the, you know, I'd heard it on records, but I didn't know that's what they were doing. <laughs> and um, so he kind of semi befriended me and he would come into the store. Like, you know, music stores are almost like Floyd's barbershop, you know, all musicians kind of come in there and hang out and, you know, and talk and shoot the shit and stuff. And uh, so he would come in there and um, would start kind of showing me, he would be like, okay, you know, you do this with your thumb, you do this. And I would, he would play a little lick and then I would try to mimic it as much as I could. And of course I was pretty shaky at first. And then, you know, each day I kind of got a little, you know, he would come in and, I, and I'd be like, hey, check this out. And, and he wasn't like for, per se giving me lessons. It was more just kind of like he was hanging out in the music store and he's like, here, try to do this. And then he would tell me to people to listen to, like, you know, go buy some, you know, some old cameo CDs and, and listen to Larry Graham. And, and, you know, and it's funny, I got a quick, funny Larry Graham story. This guy that I, I'm talking about, he's like, you got to hear Larry Graham. He's the one that invented this style, you know, from Sly and the Family Stone. And um, he said, listen to uh, Graham Central Station, any of his stuff. Well, um, there's an oldie station in Cincinnati called, or there used to be called WCIN, and it was, you know, played old, old R&B stuff. So I used to listen to it all the time because they play all this great funk on there. And finally, one day, I'm riding in the car with my mom. She's driving, of course, because I'm not driving yet. And she, and they said, okay, up next, we have Mr. Larry Graham on there. And I'm like, oh, this is the guy that this guy's been telling me I'm so excited about. Well, Larry Graham's biggest hit is this total cheesy wedding ballad called One in a Million You. <laughs> Like one in a million, you know. I mean, it's a great song. Don't get me wrong, but it's you know, it's not like the bit center of the bass universe. And I kept mm. listening to him, like, you know, is it a, like a fine wine thing? Is there something in here I'm supposed to be hearing that I'm not necessarily? So I saw that guy a few days later at the music store. Told him the story. He laughed and he's like, "Dude, don't listen to that." He said, "Check out this song called Earthquake." So then I went and heard Earthquake. And for any of your listeners that are remotely bass fans. Mm. Earthquake is if if Jimi Hendrix became a bass player. I mean, it was, and for the time that it came out, I think it came out like 73, 74. Mm. No one, you know, with the exception of maybe Bootsy was just starting to kind of dive into that stuff, but like no one was, you know, putting their bass through distortion and, and filter pedals and wah wah. I mean, it, it and it is ridiculous ridiculous and in the way it's and not only just the way what he's using but the way it's mixed it's mixed like almost like a hendrix record like sonically huge hmm. and so i heard that that song and it just like you know changed my life and then and then quickly um you know, also, I remember being a little kid, there's a there's a store downtown and they had, you know, bridging the center of the superhero thing. They had one of those big, huge cutouts. And I must have been like three or four years old, but my mom brought me downtown for Christmas one year and uh, they had this huge cutout. And it was a Bootsy. Mm. And, uh, you know, he looked like a freaking, you know, looked like Superman. You know, he's like, there was <laughs> you're on. And I'm like, what is, you know, with this big star base? And, and, and again, that was one of those, just like when I told you about that music school coming to my store, it got etched in my mind. I'm mm. like, what it's almost like a I had to find out what that was I was seeing at that age and then you know obviously later in life I found out you know firsthand what it was yeah so you ended up working with Bootsy Collins I mean that's a, an amazing kind of arc going from seeing a standee in a store to actually having him produce your first two albums right I mean he produced right. your first two freak bass albums was that just a mind-blowing experience for you to finally be in a working musical relationship with this guy that you kind of idolized from a young age still is yeah when yeah. I look back and even when I tell people the story it's it doesn't seem real um uh, quickly the way we met I was actually doing some demo work with one of the guy that used to perform with him he's a singer a guy named Gary Mudbone Cooper mm -hmm. and uh, um, uh, Mudbone was also besides all the P-Funk and Bootsy stuff he did he also uh, he was one of the guys out of P-Funk that one did like a pop thing and he actually had a number one hit the song called Let's Go All The Way I don't know if you remember that song by oh, Sly yeah. Fox yep. and so so he was this is like late 90s early 2000s he was he was wanting to uh, he was going to talk about putting them back together so he'd, we had done some demo stuff he'd heard about me playing around town and so i started doing just demo playing bass on it didn't even know about the bootsy p-funk stuff so much i knew he did a little bit of that and um so there's a label in japan called p-vine records and they were doing a it's a, it's a, a funk and soul label in japan and they were doing a Jimi hendrix tribute album bands doing songs written about hendrix not cover songs so they had like you know, some guys from Earth, Wind & Fire did a track. Some of the mm -hmm. Ohio Player guys did a track. So Mudbun was on a track with uh, Michael Hampton, who's known as Kid Funkadelic from from George Clinton's band. And he mm -hmm. said, do you want to 
play bass on it. I was like, well, yeah, of course, I'm, you know, I'd love to. And uh, he's like, okay, cool. I'll pick up on Tuesday. We're going over to Bootsy's. He's going to mix and engineer it and produce it, blah, blah, blah. Just off the cuff. I'm like, wait, wait, what did you say? We're going to whose place? And uh, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, we went there and, you know, just like that cardboard cutout, he came to the door of the studio and he looked like he was probably 20 feet tall when I first saw him <laughs> and huge grin on his face brought me into the studio and him and I just immediately hit it off like he really dug the way I played I think a lot of times the way he dug that I played because I I lit like the bass line was just see right here it, all it was was this it was this simple it was like it was all just that and that's mm -hmm. all i played i didn't sit there and you know i didn't like sit there and like hey let me show you all my chops real quick which <laughs> i would think i bet a lot of bass players get around him and they probably do that that's just my guess you know yeah, so yeah. um and we'd have to ask him to know for sure but so i just literally laid into the pocket and you know and i was looking at him he was behind the board mixing with a big grin on his face and the longer i played he kept smiling more so at the end of the session um he asked me for my number and a couple weeks later he called me up and i just started going out to his place and it wasn't about you know i thought oh i'm gonna learn all this great bass stuff but it was more like we would sit there I mean, I go to Bootsy's for a good three or four or five hours. We would sit there and he would just, we would just talk about the, you know, life and the music business and what to watch for and, and, you know, keeping your head above water in this crazy business. And then he would show me more about how to, you know, EQ and, and how to do sampling and how to use this machine. So it was all about recording and basically prepping you to have a career in music, not mm -hmm. even, you know, it wasn't about just trying to be a rock star or whatever. It was more just about like practical ways to be able to, you know, do stuff for commercials, do a studio version of a song versus a live version of a song. I mean, all that stuff. So it's, you know, it was literally like going to college for me and, but except with, you know, a master class with this guy one-on-one -on -one. and, you know, that, that personality for anybody that knows who he is, sees on stage. I mean, he's really, he's like, I mean, he's just like a, this, this, bright light of a person like all the time he's really like that it's, it was it's still still really mind-blowing and i feel so blessed to have gone through that experience with him what an incredible story and i kind of have a parallel story to that just real quick i when i was yeah. tw when i was 29 i actually got to meet chris squire and having oh, wow you know been so heavily influenced by his bass playing i got yeah. to meet him while they were recording an album in uh, santa barbara and <laughs> this says so much about your taste and your instincts versus mine because you were talking about how you didn't try to immediately wow Bootsy with a bunch of really crazy licks but when I was sitting with <laughs> in this studio with Chris Squire he handed me his Fender Jazz Bass and of course I grabbed it and I started playing like just rapidly going through all the licks that I knew and I just started playing them like like an idiot right right right, he, right. he must like have Chris gone, Squire lick Chris Squire licks you mean like yes licks you mean no I was just playing or whatever, just any licks just okay, any licks it. that I could think of that sounded like I knew what I was doing right right <laughs> right so I got gotcha. you he must have been just sitting there as I'm sitting there playing away in front of fucking Chris Squire oh um, my goodness he must have just been sitting there like that Picard face palm, the Dr. Fauci face palm thing. Like, oh, what is he doing? Oh, <laughs> what is no. what is he doing in front of me here? So I, I do appreciate that level of restraint when you meet one of your heroes to not try to immediately impress them. That was a, it's a, an incredible story that you just told about. I mean, not only from an arc perspective, but in terms of defining your taste as a musician. So I really got to tip my hat to you for that one. Oh, thank you. But, you know, whenever we have a musician on the show, we're always treated to a live performance or two. I love this part of, of interviewing you and some of the other indie musicians I've had on the show. What are you going to be playing for us today? I know, I think we've got a backing track and then you're going to play along a, a bass line with that. Yes, yes. So this is this is something I do a lot, you know, online is like I'll take, you know, a pre-existing song, you know, online a lot of times I'll break it down and exactly tell you what I'm doing and, and how I was doing it. But like, so, you know, this song, it's a track we just released a few days ago. It's a song or last week, I guess it was a song called Brainwave. It's a track that I did with um the legendary and just one of the most amazing people in the universe, Mr. Doug Wimbish. Um, a lot of people know him from Living Color. Oh, yeah. He was um, toured with Mick Jagger for years. He mm. was um, the original Sugar Hill Gang on all those Grandmaster Flash recordings. Um, just, I mean, his his the it, it's amazing that the the albums that he's been on. Um, but um, 
so we've been talking about working together for a long time. We've always connected in terms of what we do stylistically. And so we did this song called Brainwave and, uh, and then this accompanying video to it. And uh, so I thought it'd be fun to, you know, uh, for you, your listeners today to kind of play a little bit along with the track and, you know, show like if there was an additional track on there, this is the one I would do. But we'll just do it as a live improv track. Here we go. Yeah, Brainwave, uh, the great freak bass with Doug Wimbish. Holy crap, that's a great track. Great, great track. You can catch this uh, everywhere you get your digital music. Also, I've got a link in the description to uh, go watch the video and to download the song itself. Just an incredible piece of uh, music there, uh, Freak. And for those who are unfamiliar with recording music, how the hell are you putting together these songs during the pandemic? What's the process uh, for assembling all this stuff when you're there in your place and maybe Doug is in his place and you've got to, or when you're recording with the bump assembly, you know, putting all of these different pieces together without necessarily being in the same room? Right, right. Well, this piece specifically, you know, Doug's in Connecticut. Obviously, I'm in Cincinnati. So we would uh, we would trade basically files back and forth. So he would like he had some bass lines and a couple little beats, and he sent it over to me. Then I'd add a little bit on in my studio hmm. and lay it down. Then I would you know email it back through him uh, through some kind of sort of like a Dropbox type situation, and then vice versa. And we just kept it bouncing back and forth, and then we got to where we felt pretty good about everything. And then I just went to town and started mixing it and um 
And that's what we came up with. You know, in terms of the dump, the bump assembly, a lot of the stuff, luckily, we recorded. Like, that stuff is uh, all the bump assembly stuff. The majority of it's recorded live, um, all wow. in the same room. Hmm. But we'll, uh, in Denver, Colorado, which is where the studio, uh, the, the label, our label's in Denver, Colorado, called Color Red. And um, we... Um, Luckily, just did a ton of music before the pandemic, you know, that hadn't been released yet. Like, so it would have been, what, January, February last year, I think we were in Denver, mm -hmm. and we recorded almost an album's worth of material, and then we were started releasing it, like, single by single then, so... Uh, we were kind of lucky in that we just did. We just lucked out in terms of our timing, in terms of when it when it happened. So, a combination of that and a, you know everything. Now, next, um, my next single I'm getting ready to release, which I'm super excited about. Uh, Stefan Lassard, who's the bass player for Dave Matthews Band, and I did a track together. Oh, holy shit! So, yeah, it's really cool. So, um, um, we're kind of finishing it up right now. Hopefully, have it out by the end of the month and an accompanying video too. We've got Miss uh, Adrienne De Leon, who's uh, an amazing singer. She sings in her own group called Orgone, but she also acts actually uh is on uh you know the the new movie mank with uh, gary oldman um oh, yeah. trent Re trent reznor did the soundtrack to that and there was one it was mostly all instrumental but um there was one uh vocal track and and uh adrian is the singer for that track and it's actually up for cross your fingers up for an oscar so if that's the case you know she's hoping that she might be able to be performing it on the oscars hopefully so um but oh, yeah, incredible. so she she she's just an incredible singer. So so we got her singing vocals on the track. So I can, that one's going to be really really deep too. I can't wait to release that next. Okay, we'll get back to our conversation with Freak Bass right after this. Easier, that is A I S I E R. What is it? Luxurious modern sleepwear for the independent woman. Their sleepwear is made from 100% washable silk. Oh, silk is known to reduce skin surface moisture loss and limit skin irritation. Best of all, it's comfortable, so lightweight, it feels like a second skin. It'll keep you warm in the winter and cool in the summer with a fabric that loves your skin all year round. And in every type of weather, wearing silk to sleep is simply therapy at night. Izier is owned by an amazing woman, a single mom. Their products are made right here in California. You can feel good about supporting a small business delivering high-quality products. Now is the perfect time. Treat yourself or a loved one to something extra special to sleep and lounge in during Izier's Valentine's sale. Go to shopizier.com slash discount slash Stephanie. Use the discount code Stephanie, 10% off your order. That's shop, A-I-S-I-E-R.com slash discount slash Stephanie. Use that code Stephanie for 10% off your order. The Bob Seska Show. And while the Bump Assembly is sort of your core group, you often yep. bring in extra players. I mean, that's sort of a feature of your most recent uh, full-length recording, All the Way This, All the Way That, where you've got quite a few guest artists on there, too. But going back to the bump assembly how did you first hook up with this group of musicians because you've kind of had uh a lot of different collaborations over the years but how did you land on rico and sky and sammy and that uh that gang yeah, yeah. Well, Rico and I have been playing together the longest. Rico, you know, Rico toured with uh, George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic for about 15 years. He nice. was kind of in that next generation of people that toured with them. And uh, so he and I, uh, he was touring with Bernie Worrell, keyboard player from P-Funk for a short bit. And uh, Bernie had asked me to come in and sit in with them on a song. And Rico was the drummer. And him and I just hit it off great and then so when i was looking for a drummer a few years ago my drummer actually had a don't want to go into a big long story but the drummer that i was torn with at the time got in a car accident and oh, didn't no. make it yeah he was 29 years old it was really oh. really really sad um but and we were like super super tight too it wasn't just, we weren't just musician friends we were, we were like really good buddies so it was pretty pretty crazy but but rico um you know he he knew bam too bam had actually toured with bootsy as well so we, we hmm. it was all the same circle of people and so um so rico myself um, started touring with Razor Sharp, keyboard player, and uh, as a trio. And uh, Razor, unfortunately, actually, uh, he actually just passed too, like a couple years back. Jesus. And, yeah, I know. And um, it was a heart thing with him. And um, so, uh, so, so then Sky came, so Sky plays in a band also besides my band a band called um, uh, Foxy Shazam and and great 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 band kind of almost kind of queen a little bit of a queen esque kind of sounding band great great front guy mm -hmm. uh, but they weren't touring right now because the front guy had been touring with Macklemore because he sang vocals on one of his his hit songs and so uh, I'd seen Foxy Shazam at there's a award ceremony thing in Cincinnati called the uh, CEAs which are Cincinnati Entertainment Awards and and they were performing there. And, and we both saw each other 
and we're like, dude, you, I mean, he was as crazy as I am on stage. I'm like, wow, this guy's as crazy as I am on stage. I didn't think I'd ever see that. And uh, like, we're both like, okay, one of these days we're going to work together. This was like seven, eight years ago. Hmm. And then, uh, you know, zap ahead a few years ago. We were, and the coolest thing was just to, not to go down a rabbit hole, but we, um, this past year, we won the City Beat Award for Best Funk Band. And at the same thing, place we met and then, you know, went up on the stage, accept the award. And Sky kind of told that whole story how we met at this award ceremony. So it was kind of a cool little, the way the, the, the pass all crossed. But um, so, and he's he's an amazing, besides being a great keyboard player and, and just crazy man on stage, if anybody's seen him, and probably the, one of the best uh, beards in the business. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Legendary yeah. beard. Legendary beard, yeah. for sure. He um, is also an incredible writer, too, songwriter. Mm. So him and I all spend hours together just writing songs as well. So, um, and then uh, as far as Sammy, Sammy and I know she tours in another band called Turquoise. And um, they, we would play a lot of the same music festivals together. And Turquoise would have me come in and sit, sit in with them. And we just kind of started would talk at their shows. And when we went to record this song of ours called Love in Your Pocket, um, we, which has ended up being on that album you're talking about, um, the guy that was producing it, my, uh, my friend Atal Shore, he's like, he's like, dude, you need to, uh, we need to get a female vocal on this with you. And I was like, I wonder if Sammy be into it. So I talked to her and then uh, she's a real, as well as being, you know, a great musician and, and great vocalist, she's a real visual person like I am. So it just seemed, and then we kept recording together and it's, and Turquoise is on tour all the time. I was like, well, hey, when you're not on the road with them, how did you go on the road with me? And then next thing she just became part of the bump assembly too. So yeah. just kind of all, all through osmosis, I guess. And oh my God, they're all so good on Under Cremeria, which came out yep. this past year. Just an incredible video and an incredible song. I don't know. Know how you're doing all this crap uh like these, these very elaborate videos uh for well, well that one we actually that was actually done during the i mean we were uh, but if you that video under cremario is done in this huge factory so we were actually yeah. even though we were in the same room we were social it was easy to get you know more than six feet away we were probably like 20 feet away from each other so we actually recorded with the exception of sammy sammy lives in brooklyn new york and, and we flew her in on the video but ever, but sky me and rico did ours actually all together there and just kind of kept our distance with our masks on when we weren't between takes. Yeah. yeah. And it's an incredible effort and it's an amazing video. It's just incredible visual effects and everything in it. And uh, Sammy obviously features prominently in it. And the Cremeria, yeah. that's the flower that she's dumping on you guys, right? This is the flower. Yeah. Yeah. And that's from a that's a real major street in Denver, Colorado. That's where we got the name. Um, we oh. were like looking for a name of the song. We were uh, driving to the store between you know uh, the session, and we literally found ourselves looking up at the street sign. We were sitting under the Cremeria street sign, so we thought it was under the, and then we just under Cremeria. And we're actually releasing an EP, and we're just calling it Cremeria because it's such a cool. It almost sounds like something you hear like in an Aquaman movie. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I'm from I am from Cremeria. You know uh, exactly right. Very super. Superhero sounding to me, you know. Right, and I had to look it up. I had no idea what it was. I was like, oh, "This is a great song. Right. What the hell is Cremeria?" So I had to go to Google. Yeah, yeah check it out. Yeah. You know, I always see your name pop up alongside Buckethead too. Yeah. And I have to admit, there's something about him that's a little terrifying. I don't know what sure. it is, but I'm a little scared of Buckethead. What's he like behind the Jason mask and the KFC bucket? <laughs> super quiet. Yeah. And you know, he seems like a type of guy. I mean, super, super sweet, super nice. Um, seems like the type of guy that. You you know, was probably, you know, when he was 10, 11, 12 years old, sat in his room all day long and just played guitar nonstop, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And maybe, and some video games thrown in there too as well. So, hmm. um, yeah, I mean, he's really great guy. He's almost like the anti-rock star, which makes him a rock star. You know, that's what's so cool about his, his whole kind of persona. Yeah. Um, and just, I mean, if you haven't seen him, any, any of your listeners or listened to him, I mean, he's just, um, I mean, it, it's, it's prodigious, his guitar playing. It's really incredible. Oh, yeah. And, and, and besides just doing all the shred stuff, which he's great at, but he's like, his rhythm chops are just crazy good too. So yeah, um, you know, but we met through Bootsy. Bootsy, uh, you know, kind of the same way, kind of discovered Buckethead. Buckethead had sent him some tapes and and Bootsy dug his thing. And so when we were recording, I think it was Air's Pressure Underground, which was the second album that Bootsy produced for me, he brought Buckethead in on it. And then, then we just kind of went, and we started doing, and then Buckethead started kind of touring in the same kind of scene, jam band, funk scene, whatever you want to call it as I did. So we would end up doing shows together a lot too. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. And as I said, there's something a little bit scary about him, but he is a, uh, he's a shredder 
who actually knows how to write music too. You see a lot of guys right. who can play really fast licks on a guitar and that's kind of all they do. But Buckethead is like super creative. It's He's almost like uh, the kind of shredding uh, doppelganger of you. He's like uh, somewhere in that same universe. So it, it makes perfect sense to me to see you guys on stage together. Uh, well, and what's so cool about him too is that he's kind of, you know, as you were mentioning about me, you know, like putting these weird, you know, superheroes and funk and, mm-hmm. and, and, all this weird stuff. He's kind of the same. I mean, he is like fanatical LeBron James fan. I think even if you go to his website, like the opening page is LeBron James and he wrote this big song to him. And then you'll go to his shows and, you know, like the the bumper music they're playing, you know, before he goes on stage, you would think it would be, you know, some big, you know, Testament or, you know, some kind of big shred, you know, Joe Satriani album or something like Mm -hmm. that. And it's, it's these old obscure 80s Michael Jackson songs. (laughs) So it's yeah. like, yeah, he's an oxymoron, which is what's so great about him. Well, you mentioned superheroes again. And of course, uh, one last question for you, Freak. Uh, we're both equally excited to see the Snyder Cut of Justice League on HBO uh, Max uh, next month. Did, I'm just, did you I'm see so that joke, Joker uh, Joker little tease he put out yesterday? Oh, yes, I did. I'm really anxious to see what uh, Snyder does with Joker inserting into, the, uh, in, into Justice League. But um, just to troll our mutual friend Rick Shue, what is it about? <laughs> what is it about uh, Snyder's DC universe that you love so much? I think we uh, pretty much agree on this. Yes, yeah, we are definitely in the same camp of that. Well, you know, I think with Rick, you know, his big thing is more the. Yeah, I don't know if it's so much about the Batman thing. It's more obviously more the Superman thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the fact that you know, I love that Snyder. You know, it's it's a little bit Nolan esque, which I think even Christopher Nolan kind of co-wrote Man of Steel, the first uh, C- C- Cavill uh, movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the realistic approach and, and, and the, you know, how do I fit into this worldness of, you know, all his superheroes, especially Superman and the realistic take he take realistic while still being fantasy. You know, I mean, I don't know what people when they heard Batman versus Superman, what they were expect I mean, what did you think he was going to do? You know, of course, it's going to be super dark. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. I right. mean, how else could they get super mad at each other? You know, mm-hmm. and um, especially Batman towards Superman and, you know, Batman going off on the deep end a little bit, which I thought was genius. You know, yeah. the more they can be that they show their their humanness and inner demons like us. I like that. I mean, to me, because it makes them more approachable. You know, I mean, I know I can't fly like Superman, but he's still the idea of being approachable. I don't know. I just, you know, I mean, I know people, I mean, I love the Christopher Reeve version of Superman too. And there's an approach, approachness of that too, but it's just the, um, you know, questioning who you are in this universe, which is, I think that's one is, and obviously visually too, Zach's just Mm -hmm. stylistically, just cinematography alone. It's just, you know, just mind blowingly good. Mm -hmm. That's my way in. I just, I love that look, the overall photography of what uh, Zack Snyder does with his films, all of his films. It's sort of his signature thing. It's like his calling card. But I think the thing that uh, a lot of people don't quite understand about Batman v Superman in particular is that Batman is wrong through most of that movie. I think we're used to seeing, and I think this is one of the things that threw a lot of people. It's like, oh shit, Batman's doing something that I didn't expect him to do. Yeah. Uh, and I don't like this Batman. Well, you're not supposed to like this Batman until he has that revelation. Oh, Superman's kind of just like one of us. And that kind of, you know, the light bulb went on over his head. I think it was the notorious, the somehow controversial Martha scene. And that was the change. I think that's why uh, some people are, put off by that particular movie but what's so great we're still about talking it? what is it five years now six years we're, we're still yes. there's there's adamant like you know huge arguments people that you know will, will bet their life on this mm-hmm. movie still on i mean you say what you will about that but we're still talking about this movie non-stop five six years later you know oh yeah yeah and one of the things that i think the main thing i love about this approach to this superhero genre is that it's not the same as marvel it's different i mean right. some of the more recent movies Shazam has kind of a Marvel feel and so on and that's the DC universe but uh, when it comes to Snyder's films I like that he didn't take that same road that he tried something new and different and took that risk and had that ambition and I think that that's something that needs to be rewarded in this genre where there is so much pressure to be the same to do the same sorts of stories and have the same types of of characters throughout and that's really admirable to me to to do that, to take a a movie that 
is immensely expensive and spend whatever it is, $300 million of studio cash and to make yeah. something that is unexpected is super duper ballsy. Yeah. yeah. If you think about Batman, especially the ultimate edition, if you think about the, um, when you're watching that, it's like, wow, this movie actually got greenlit. You know, it's like, you know, I, mean, <laughs> yeah. I love it as a superhero fan. I'm like, this is the best thing ever, but it's like, wow, it's pretty incredible mm -hmm. when you think about that that movie even made it as far, you know, even before all the craziness with what happened with Justice League a couple years later, but just the fact that, you know, even the theater release, the fact that that actually got released, you know, like a major, major, major motion picture that that got green, I think it's brilliant. And they found out when they ran from that is when they got in trouble and when they embraced it, like say even went even darker with a movie like Joker, um, mm -hmm. you know, that they saw the payoff. It was a million, you know, a billion dollar Joker was, which, you know, I mean, my gosh, so everybody made so much cash off that movie. It's crazy, but oh, yeah. it's, um, you know, and they just, uh, you know, I love the fact that when DC does, I, like you said, it says like, don't be Marvel. I mean, Marvel's great and I love Marvel too, but just, uh, you know, embrace that otherworldness of DC, you know? Yeah. You mentioned Joker too. And there's a lot of people who are complaining about the latest, uh, Wonder Woman movie, but I noticed that Wonder Woman's Rotten Tomatoes score is only, I think it's either six or eight points lower than Joker's uh, Rotten Tomatoes score. So it's wow. in that range, and I think people aren't quite realizing that, that it's that the overall critical reaction was not that bad in the grand scheme, given that Joker, which is an Oscar winner now, is in that same general range as far as at least the reviews go. So I found that uh, to be a fascinating little detail about the uh, reaction to Wonder Woman, the latest uh, 1984. So I, God, I can't thank you enough for taking your time. I, we've gone extra long today. I really appreciate the uh, <laughs> the extra time here. Oh, uh, and uh, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. So I definitely got to have you back on. But again, uh, thank you so much for being on today, Freak. Uh, how can people find you online? Well, the easiest, most obvious way is just to go to the old magical, you know, website, which is uh, F R E E K two E's F R E E K B A S S dot com. Uh, same thing at uh, Facebook. It's Freak based music and then uh, Twitter and um, Instagram, both freak based too, spelled the same way. So um, I'm hanging at all those places nowadays virtually. Well, thank you again. And thank you for sharing Brainwave with us today. This is an incredible piece of work. And uh, I'm thinking about playing the live version on the show instead of the studio version because <laughs> it's just oh. it's such a special little uh, a piece of uh, performance for us here. So, well, uh, thank it's you again. Specifically for you now. There's no, nowhere else in the universe you can find it except for the Bob Seska show. So Outstanding. Well, thank you again, my friend, and we'll see you. Uh, we'll see you online. We'll see you on Twitter. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Bob. Take care. Bye bye. One last thing here. We're so grateful that vaccinations for COVID-19 are underway. Unfortunately, while there's light at the end of the tunnel, infection rates and hospitalizations are at an all-time high across the country. In California, some hospitals are turning away patients or threatening to ration care. While we're nearing the finish line for this brutal pandemic, getting there means staying safe. For the foreseeable future, only respirator face masks provide real protection from transmission. Unfortunately, the huge demand and limited supply of respirators means we are flooded with fakes and counterfeits that do almost nothing. Well, right now, the New Deal Shop.com has FDA authorized KN95 respirator masks with anti fraud labeling on every single package that can be verified right on the manufacturer's website. They're tested in the United States by the NPPTL and provide the most significant level of protection. Their respirator masks are in stock in the U.S. and ship immediately for free. Go to the New Deal Shop.com now and get verified, authenticated, FDA authorized N95 masks shipped immediately to your home or business. That's the New Deal Shop.com. TheNewDealShop.com. Go now.